Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John's Gospel? We're resuming uh, our time in in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the last verse in chapter 7 and then look at verses 1 through 11 in John chapter 8. So John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 11. That's where I'll read. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, still feel free to go back and pick one up from the back. There, uh, there's a stack back there, plenty. And if you if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, they're on page 1062 um, in that in that Bible. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53, and we'll read through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such, a, such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. Sin no more. You've all heard stories. Maybe this is actually you. Because sometimes this is me. Um, and maybe you've encountered in your own life uh, illness. Um, but you haven't been, so, you've been someone who thinks to yourself, it's not all that serious. Um, and so you avoid going to the doctor um, and you avoid treating it. And you don't want to take anything and it gets worse and it gets worse until finally you break down and you go to the doctor and you, and you get a prescription. Um, we all know people who tend that direction, I think, when they get sick. They're like, it's no big deal. It's not a problem. We're, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll, I can live with this. Sometimes, though, you hear stories of folks, and maybe you've experienced someone, or maybe, again, you've experienced this in your own life, where it gets worse and worse, and then you get a diagnosis that's less than favorable. You get a diagnosis, sometimes it's just a cold, but sometimes it can be cancerous. This passage this morning is an interesting passage. There's a, there's a lot going on here, and if you're reading the ESV like I am, if you have one of those Bibles in the back, or if you're reading the ESV, and even if you have a different translation, uh, you might see a note in brackets here. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include ver- chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. Uh, the compilers of our Bible in the ESV have chosen to put it here, and I think that there's good reason to, to leave it here. I don't want you to, to get thrown off by that. Um, it's just simply a note saying to you, saying to us, um, that in the earliest manuscripts that we have that go back to the second century um, and maybe even one or two into the first century, um, this 
story doesn't exist in those manuscripts. Some of the later ones um, begin including it. Now, again, I think there's a lot of good reason for it to be here in, in our Bible, and I think that it fits thematically very, very well with John and what John is trying to communicate right here in the heart of his gospel. I mean, we're going to look at some of those themes this morning. So I want to, I want to say to you, uh, don't be thrown off by those brackets there. Um, this is an important text and gives us an opportunity to understand who God is uh, and who Jesus is better. In this passage this morning also, though, we're reminded of sin. Um, and we're reminded of the seriousness of sin. And we're reminded, again, as we've seen already in John's gospel, the gift of repentance. When we think about repentance, oftentimes we're thinking about sin and we're thinking in ways uh, that, that brings negative connotations into our minds, right? Repentance oftentimes makes us think, I've done something wrong. And then we, uh, I've sinned against God. I've broken God's law. And so that word carries such a negative weight with it. What I want you to see here is the repentance that we're called to is, is a gift. It's genuinely something that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. It's given to us the ability to see clearly the violation of God's law, to see clearly the sin that we get so easily entangled into, and to turn and to go towards God, admitting fully that it's not us uh, who, uh, who is right, but God who is right. Admitting fully that we are not God and we don't set the standards, but it is God who does. And that's the beauty of repentance. And so as we work our way through the rest of John's gospel, please keep that in mind. Please keep in mind when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about something that's negative. We're talking about a great gift given to us by the Holy Spirit, the ability to see clearly according to God's word and to turn and to go the other way. So we shouldn't forget, though, uh, repentance is necessary because of our sin. And we shouldn't forget the seriousness of sin as it's laid out here, even in, a, in this text this morning. I think we frequently do forget the seriousness of our sin. I think we do frequently um, think about downplaying our sin, or we seek to self-justify, or we just ignore it and hope it goes away. Now, in this passage, we meet the Pharisees, and we meet Jesus, and we meet a woman who's caught in adultery, sort of these three different parties. Um, the goal here in John's gospel isn't necessarily the woman caught in adultery, although we learn a lot from her. The goal here is more the Pharisees' continual uh, spiral downward in their own murderous intents and seeking to destroy Jesus. Their sin is what's compounding here and piling up and the primary thing we're meant to see. Sin has a way, and we should be warned by this, sin has a way of multiplying itself, of reproducing continually, and then consuming people wholeheartedly. And again, this is an interesting intersection of sinners woman caught in adultery, an increased, uh, uh, an ongoing saga, increased hostility with the Pharisees towards Jesus. The woman we're introduced to here in this text, we don't really know much about her, except for the fact that she was caught in sin. 
She doesn't really even get a speaking part. She says three words, no one, Lord, when he asks her who is there who condemns her. But one of the main characters, if we can call them a character, is the Pharisees throughout John's gospel. And, uh, and the main point, again, here is that they're continuing to try, the, the scribes and the Pharisees here are continuing to try to trap Jesus. They think they can get him to contradict himself here. They think that they can get him to say something in contradiction to statements he's already made in his ministry. And so this morning, I want to highlight that, the multiplying, reproducing, consuming sin of the Pharisees. And then I want you to walk away from this text seeing a couple other things too. The unchecked sin that leads to destructive tendencies. But even where sin has a death grip, um, we see the power of the conscience. We see the, the, the conscience is still active, even in these men who are descending into their sin, into their murderous attempts to destroy Jesus. So, we're going to walk kind of through this text, and I want you to first note the Pharisees' self-destructive plan. The Pharisees' self-destructive plan. I don't think that this plan by the Pharisees was very well thought out. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I think that uh, we find Jesus teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees bring this woman, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who they caught committing the sin of adultery. Maybe thought, this is the low-hanging fruit. We're going to get Jesus with this, this, this one. Now, adultery is clearly a violation of God's law. It's right there in the Ten Commandments, right? The Seventh Commandment, um, thou shall not commit adultery. And so the Seventh of the Ten Commandments directly prohibits adultery. But in Deuteronomy 22.22, tells us that uh, adultery is a capital offense. And the punishment for both the man and the woman caught in adultery is death. Sin is serious business, according to God. But this plan by the Pharisees is half-baked because they only brought one of the parties. They only show up with the woman. They don't bring the man as well, and we don't know more details. Maybe he got away from them, I don't know. But the reality is that even here, um, they're thinking in a way about trapping Jesus, not upholding the law. Their intents are not to uphold the law. And they say to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You see that? You see how this is a, just, it's just a plan, a half-baked one to try and trap Jesus. And because Jesus said back he, when, when he was in a conversation with Nicodemus, and he says this throughout the gospel on a couple of occasions, in chapter 3, verse 17, <clears throat> For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So they're thinking to themselves, will Jesus condemn this woman in front of us? Will he contradict his words back in John chapter 3, or wherever else he may have said it? Will he contradict what he says? Or would Jesus contradict Moses? They think they've got him. They think they've got him. Or will he contradict Moses and downplay strict adherence to the seventh commandment and ultimately claim that the law is unimportant? 
Now, what the Pharisees and the scribes don't understand is that Jesus can act mercifully and not downplay the law. And that's exactly what he's going to do here. Again, this is the rising action of John's gospel. The Pharisees growing more and more frustrated with Jesus and their attempts to take him down become more absurd. Obviously, Jesus knew the law. For us here, when understanding what John has written, the the gospel writer has written for us, we know that Jesus was there when the law was given to Moses, and he was the one who gave the law to Moses. He understands how it applies. He knows exactly what the intent behind the law. Jesus is truth. He can't deny himself. Jesus is sinless. He can't lie. So his response here is the perfect response. Jesus sees right through it. Sees right through this attempt. And he responds in all wisdom. Jesus, again, wisdom incarnate. He responds in all wisdom. He just is quiet. He doesn't say anything. Look at verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And then verse 7 tells us they continue to ask him. But his immediate response is silence. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the ground when he bent down. Um, But we can say that Jesus didn't intend to engage with this half-hearted attempt to pin him down. And, like I said, in all wisdom he responds. Solomon in Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And so, this is kind of the next thing that I want you to see here, is the wisdom of God on display in Jesus. The wisdom of God on display in Jesus. Again, not answering them, giving them silence, is God's wisdom from Proverbs 26.4. But in verse 7, we see that they continue to press him. They continue to ask him, right? And so he stands up and addresses them. And again, he responds in all wisdom. Because Solomon's very next proverb, if 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Jesus now responds in all wisdom and with what Solomon says in 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, so that the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't see their, uh, their self-destructive plan and Jesus' silence to it, um, as bulletproof, as proof that Jesus couldn't answer the question, Jesus answered it. He said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, not, not one of her accusers could, could say this, right? They had all broken the law at one point or another, and they knew it. The text says, but when they heard it, in verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They were all gone. None could say that they were sinless. In fact, their very motives 
And bringing this woman to Jesus, again, wasn't to uphold the law, but a a destructive plan to take down Jesus, to trap him. They weren't trying to adequately enforce God's law and see a sinner punished. Their goals this whole time were to destroy Jesus. And so each one, under the weight of their own conscience, turns around and, and leaves. No one was left. I want you to see, though, the wisdom of God on display in Jesus and not answering a fool according to his folly and answering a fool according to his folly, but then what Jesus does here. Um, everyone, Jesus knew the law so much better than that because he, he wrote it. Everyone who brought the woman to Jesus had departed. There was no one left who witnessed the sin to make the case against her. So just like Deuteronomy 22.22 says that the punishment for her sin was death, and they, the scribes and Pharisees wanted to highlight that one here. In Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, Jesus knew that the law also required two or three witnesses to establish this charge against this woman. And so that, that verse, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Now, there's not even a single witness left. There's zero. So not suffice for, uh, uh, against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So everyone's gone. Jesus is left with this woman. No witnesses are left. No one was left to accuse or condemn the woman to build a case against her. This is, this is the wisdom of God on display in Jesus Christ. Before we draw some conclusions here, notice something that Jesus doesn't do, though. I want to highlight this before we, before we conclude, go to the Lord's table together this morning. Notice what Jesus doesn't ever make light of this woman's sin. Uh, a faulty interpretation of this text will say that Jesus is actually downplaying the law. He doesn't address that at all. That's not the point of this text at all. He never makes light of the woman's sin. The seventh commandment isn't downplayed or undermined. Adultery is clearly a violation of God's, uh, God's law, and Jesus affirmed it as such. If we go back to Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, in In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. We've heard it said. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That doesn't sound like a downplaying. That sounds like an intensification. Jesus is not downplaying this in this passage this morning. Jesus is not diminishing the sin of adultery in any way, shape, or form. So, if you're caught up in sin, if you this morning or someone that you know is caught up in sin, don't make the mistake of using this text to justify it. Don't, Jesus isn't saying here that, not all this, that sin isn't all that serious or that sin will be swept under the rug. It's not going to be swept under the rug. Sin is sickness that cannot be remedied by ignoring it or seeking to justify. It can only be remedied by the blood of Jesus. And justification only comes through him. So the point here is that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees would stop at no end to try and destroy him. This woman would answer for her sin, just not now. This is God's mercy to her, that she hears the words from Jesus Christ himself. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. This is a call to repentance. This is a gift given to this woman. A gift of mercy lavished upon her, despite the fact that she didn't deserve it at all. (laughs) Do you remember when in the Garden of Eden, where God forbids Adam and subsequently Eve from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And he says, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. On the day that they eat of it, they don't die. That's mercy. The moment that you came into the world, sin inherited from your father, Adam. And the moment, the first moment that you committed sin in your sin, in your sin nature, God, in his justice, could have said, you surely die now. But because of his infinite mercy, Because of the mercy which is on display in the person of Jesus Christ. He is patient with us. His kindness towards us leads us to repentance. His kindness and patience to us should not cause us to think that he's indifferent to our sin. Rather, it should tell us about his character. And he is a loving, patient God. So, The call to repentance then that we see here right at the end of this text. Jesus is not explaining the sin away. Jesus doesn't say it's no big deal. Just go keep living your life. He said go. And from now on sin no more. The call is to turn from sin. The call is to repent. Because even though Jesus came into the world the first time to to save the world. Jesus will judge it when he comes the second. So again, we're going to go to the Lord's table in just a moment, but I want you to reflect on your own repentance. And I want you to think about the gift of repentance. The gift of the call to go and sin no more. So just three things. I'm going to state these, um, hopefully simply, simply, so that you can look at this text this week and consider um, in your own life the repentance of this woman and the repentance that the Pharisees and scribes needed to engage in as they spiraled downward in this destructive tendency. So first thing is this. Carefully consider your own life in light of the Pharisees' destructive behavior. Again, this is the multiplying, reproducing sin that can, has taken hold in them as they've sort of begun to lose their minds and are completely unreasonable, heading, catapulting towards committing murder. They sought to destroy Jesus, and it's only going to get more intense throughout this chapter in particular, in chapter 8. They, their hate, their resentment, their frustration towards Jesus was compounding, and this is exactly what an unchecked sin does. Sin is not, just a little oops, I shouldn't have said that, over here. 
And oops, I shouldn't have said that. With no repentance is, uh, becomes a snowball effect. It rolls down the hill and grows. It's a big monster that lurks in the shadows and feeds wherever sin isn't properly addressed in our hearts. Harboring the hate and the bitterness and the frustration feeds the monster. Repentance through, though, turns from those things and starves the monster. Taking on love and forgiveness, clothing ourselves in Christ's likeness. So even the oops, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't be justified away. It should be repented of and turned from. That's how you starve the sin monster. You need to see our tendency. This is our tendency. Our tendency is to get caught up in the snowball effect of sin. Because it kind of feels good to feed, feed that beast. It kind of feels good when we see other people trapped in their sin. We sit on the couch or at the coffee shop and gossip about it. Did you know about so-and-so and what such and such? They did this or that? Did you hear about the way that she talked to her husband? Or did you see the way that they parent? Can you believe that he said that to his coworker during, during a meeting? See the house they bought? They must be in so much debt. Can you believe that he got the raise despite how much time he wasted the water cooler? This is downright vile. This is exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing. When those thoughts pop into our mind, instead of getting them out of our mouth and putting someone else's name in our mouth, what we ought to do is kill it. Starve it. Repent. Turn. Go the other direction. All of these things, any one of those things, anything that you may be saying about another person who's caught in their own sin, those things may be true, but you're observing and relaying their sin is only designed to feed your own sin monster instead of helping them put to death theirs. The Pharisees had no need for the woman caught in adultery other than to use her to try and get to Jesus. They didn't want to love her through her law-breaking. They, didn't want to, they wanted to leverage her sin to destroy Jesus. Friends, be careful that you don't use the sin of others to achieve your own self-justifying sin monster-feeding goals. It's easy to do. The second thing here in conclusion is consider carefully the power of the conscience. Despite the scribes and Pharisees, their plan to trap Jesus here, they couldn't avoid the reality that they were two sinners. That they broke the law at some point as well. I think it's interesting. The older ones go away first. They realize in their wisdom and their that they've sinned. They go away first, but everyone ultimately, once they take inventory, finds their conscience wouldn't allow them to pick up a rock and stone the woman. When you find yourself embroiled in the sin of gossip, like we just talked about, or say something simple like bitterness or resentment, frustration, or something compounding like lust, you sense a little twinge inside of you in your conscience when you're engaged in that activity? Or maybe it starts screaming. 
Listen and repent. Don't plow through. If you plow through and continue in that sin, that's when that sin-feeding monster concept comes into play. Starve it. Repent. Because when you don't, you sear it. You sear the conscience. All those nerve endings in your conscience become less and less sensitive over time. It becomes easier to feed the monster. We find that there is always hope, though, here in this text, because even though scribes and Pharisees were hell bent on destroying Jesus, even their consciences couldn't stand under the weight of his words in verse 7. Friends, subject yourself to the Word of God. Put yourself this week under the Word of God. The weight of Jesus' words will cause your conscience to be sensitive, to see your sin clearly to repent, to turn the other direction. This is a gift of mercy. Final thing this morning. Consider carefully Jesus' call to repentance in light of the seriousness of sin. This is kind of a summary, summary conclusion statement, but the woman caught in adultery was guilty of breaking the law in a very serious way. But the wisdom and mercy of God on display in Jesus called her to step out in repentance and to turn. Your your sin and my sin are not less than this woman's. We don't know about what came before and what came after with her, but we do know that in this instance, she did break the law. There's no denying it. Some of you in this room may be adulterers, yes. But we've all broken God's law at some point. Have you dishonored your parents? Have you broken the Sabbath? Have you made a promise before God that you failed to keep? Have you stolen? Have you coveted? You get the idea. The call here from Jesus is repent. From now on, sin no more. Every time you get there in your Bible, the call is to repent. From now on, go and sin no more. The call to repentance is not judgment. It's mercy. Because for those who do not repent, judgment is coming. God is calling you back to himself. Even now, as we read this together, God is calling you back to himself. If you've slipped into feeding the sin monster and it's grown, and your conscience has become seared and those nerve endings have become less sensitive, turn back to Jesus. Go and sin no more. Your sin against God has the power to throw you into self-destruction. Repent. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The call to repentance is mercy. Because the other side of the coin here is belief in Jesus Christ and trust in the fact that his precious blood can forgive sins. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Repent and believe. Is this process pleasant? I don't know about you, but I don't really exactly like being shown that I'm living in sin. Or that sin has been part of my day. It's not pleasant. But in it, we find life. Because when we see our sinfulness, we see the beauty of Christ. Who came and lived a sinful life, or sinless life, so that our sinful life could be paid for and redeemed. So this morning, as we go to the Lord's table, listen carefully to what Paul writes at the beginning of Romans 8. 
He says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that your sin doesn't matter, but it does mean that Jesus has paid for it. In his infinite mercy, he has given us and called us to repentance and told us to trust in him, whose blood washes us clean of all of our sin. The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. How will God forgive us? How can God forgive us? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which is what we celebrate now at the Lord's table. The blood of Jesus shed for you. This is, this is a moment where we don't downplay our sin. We don't reduce the importance of the blood shed. When we approach this table, you get the little cup of grape juice. By downplaying and self-justifying, you're saying, this does not have worth. But what the reality here is that Jesus' blood has the ability to wash even the vilest sinner clean. It was the blood of the spotless, sinless Son of God uncreated eternal son of God that was required to pay the infinite debt of sin you and I racked up through our gossip, our slander, our unforgiveness, our hatred, our sexual immorality, all of our sin. It was enough to cover the sin of the self-destructive Pharisees who brought this accusation against this woman and tried to trap Jesus with it. It was enough to cover the adultery this woman was caught in. If it was enough to cover those things, it's enough to cover you and me. How will God declare us? How can God declare us righteous before himself? How can he do that through the righteousness of Christ credited to us? So when we pick up the bread, the sinless body broken. There was no reason for it to be broken except for the fact that he laid it down for us. A sinless life carried in the body of Christ, broken for you and me, striped back, pierced hands and feet, a spear-impaled side, the body of Christ represented by the bread, broken for you. Paul then writes in Romans, well, earlier in Romans 6, 1, he says, are we to consider, continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, we how can we who died to sin still live in it? Go, and from now on, sin no more. As those who have been covered by the blood of Jesus, as those who have been credited his righteousness, go and sin no more. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we wrap our time up together, and as you approach the table this this morning, consider very carefully the gift of repentance. God's mercy on display in Christ calling us to turn from our sin. And that is for those who have been, uh, who have been um, covered by the blood of Jesus. Who the broken body of Jesus is given to. This morning may we consider together the, the sin that so easily entangles us. May we repent and turn. May we live according to what God has commanded us in his word by the power of the spirit that he has given to us. So again, as we do when we approach the Lord's table, when you're prepared in your heart, come on up to the front and grab the elements. You can take them back to your seat and and receive them there. But remember, Jesus' blood shed for you for the sin that has entangled you or maybe did at one point. And the broken body, righteousness credited to you this morning. You know this drill when the kids, if you have kids in here, and they've made a credible profession of faith, um, allow them to participate with you. This is for believers. This is not for everyone. If you're not sure where you are with Jesus, if you're not sure where you stand, if you have not repented of your sin and put your full trust in Jesus Christ to pay for that sin and to grant you eternal life, just use this time to reflect. No one's watching you. So I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come forward. And we'll receive the elements. And then, uh, and, uh, and then you can take them when your heart feels released to do so. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you uh, for the truth here that we find. God, we thank you for the gift of repentance given to us. God, would you, through your Holy Spirit now, as we reflect on the elements that are before us, God, as we receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, would we see clearly any sin that has uh, entangled us, that has kept us or or put us in a place where uh, it has begun to multiply in our lives? God, would we turn from that? God, would we go hard after you? God, we praise you this morning that you are patient with us. That you, in your infinite wisdom, have not given us uh, or diminished the commands that you've given to us in your word, but God, that Jesus Christ perfectly upheld them and has mercifully granted us the righteousness that only comes through him. God, we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.